invite you to open to the passage we heard read earlier in our service, uh, Colossians 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to be honest uh, in, in talking about this passage. It's been a while since I felt this apprehensive about preaching a passage of Scripture. If, uh, if you were to say, hey, what topics culturally are, are a little more sensitive, what topics would be ones that we might be a little apprehensive about preaching, I think submission and slavery would get pretty high on that list. I asked a couple other people from the church if they wanted to preach this passage in my place. No one took me up on that. I'm a little surprised. But I, I think we need to understand the difficulty of this passage before we just assume that we're all on the same page. This is one of the harder passages in Colossians. And generally, when you hear a preacher say that, it's because there's difficulty in either understanding or interpreting the passage. It might be a passage with various views that are hard to understand what the right view is. That's not the case with our passage. This isn't a passage that has lots of, of different views on it. The difficulty with our passage is that these are topics that are, we struggle to accept and apply. They're topics that are hard for us to swallow. Part of the problem is that even if we do accept these verses, even if we are willing to apply them, we struggle to appreciate them. It's kind of the, the part that we kind of want to keep hidden a little bit in the background. If you, let's say that you've been uh, talking to an unbelieving friend and you've been inviting them to come to church and they finally showed up and you find out that this is the passage that you're going to be on. You're a little uncomfortable and you're thinking, oh man, hope they come back. If you were to post these verses, no explanation, just post these verses online what kind of interaction do you think will happen from that post? And so maybe, I don't want to assume that you're here and you're like, oh, I don't know, Stephen, I, I think that this is wrong. No, I think that most of you probably are in agreement and yet it's still hard to see how we can actually even appreciate these verses. The reality is, though, I, I want to propose this morning that the various reasons why we struggle with this passage are actually symptoms of a deeper problem. There's something going on beneath the surface that go beyond just, well, culturally, this isn't really acceptable. Uh, personally, I, I struggle with different elements of this. The reality is that the deeper issue that must be addressed within the passage is that woven throughout these verses... There is a truth that reveals a darker and underlying heart defect that must be considered. Here's the deeper question that reveals the heart of the matter. Is Christ Lord? Is Christ Lord? That theme frames the entire conversation. That is the underlying foundation. The answer to that question will establish whether or not you look at these verses as a blessing or a curse. As freedom or slavery. slavery. Is he my king? All the reasons we might struggle to accept, apply, or appreciate the commands of our passage stem from that deeper war within our soul regarding Christ as our Lord. Is he my king? Is he my master? Here's our big idea this morning. Submit your earthly role to the Lord to fulfill your heavenly calling. Submit your earthly role to the Lord to fulfill your heavenly calling. Calling. Let's read through our passage once again, starting in verse 18. Wives, 
Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. First thing I want to do as we're coming to this passage is, is again, to frame the entire conversation according to how Paul has framed it. One of the problems with our passage is that, that leads us to more difficulty, difficulty is that we often look at these verses topically. Usually when we've heard these verses presented, it might be at a conference, it might be in a counseling scenario, and that's fine, but often we look at them and when we come to these, we start only thinking about these very unique issues and we forget about the bigger picture of what's going on within the book. But we've already now been in Colossians all the way back since January. There's a bigger argument, there's a bigger theme that's being presented. So as we've already discussed this various times, what structure do we find in Colossians? What does Paul begin presenting, starting with T? What is the first chapter all about? Truth. What does he hope that truth will produce? The final T, transformation. Paul is going to start by, by laying a foundation, a firm foundation that we can stand on so that then we can be built up. That that transformation can happen, that a growth that comes from God. So when we look at the beginning of the letter, what is the main truth that Paul has pointed to? What is the main theme of the truth he has shared? Christ. Who is Jesus and what has Jesus done? Now that's a very similar theme to the book we were in before in the Gospel of John. Who is Jesus? What has he done? But this is a different flavor because this is talking to people who have accepted that truth. As we see in the beginning of Colossians, those who have believed, those who are set apart. But Paul's going back to that truth and saying, if that's true, it changes everything. Turn back with me, if you have your Bible, go back to Colossians 1, looking at verse 13. I want us to establish the, the picture of what Paul is saying beyond just the limited context of our passage, but, but look at it within the context of the book. Paul says this in verse 13. He, and it's talking about the Father, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you see in this passage the answer to both questions, who Jesus is and what he's done? Look at the passage. Who is Jesus? Well, it says that we were transferred into the kingdom of the son. What does that make the son? He's the king. What did this king do for us? How were we able to be transferred into his kingdom? The king redeemed us from our captivity and he forgave our sins. If we keep reading and we come to verse 15, let's look at more truth in these following verses. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be 
preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, is Paul answering the question, who is Jesus? And if I were to ask you, can you list all the things that Jesus is according to these verses, we might as well just read them again because it's a long list. But this is your savior. This is your master. This is your king. This is your Lord. And what has he done? He has created all things. It's all for him. That in everything, he might be preeminent. He is reconciling all things. When we looked at this passage, that means to put things back in their right position. Now for this passage, when it's talking about all things, that means that some people are going to be put back in their right position under him, meaning under his feet in judgment. We continue, though, in the passage, though, and there is a blessing for us because we are now reconciled. How? Because he made peace by the blood of his cross. That now we are holy. Now we are beloved. Now we are set apart. Now we are chosen. Why? Because of the work of Christ. See, Paul goes on to share even greater truths that because Christ redeemed and forgave us, because he made peace by the blood of his cross, because we have now been reconciled by faith, we now have the privilege of being recipients of the great mystery, which is Christ in us. We have been buried and raised with Christ. We are being renewed in the image of our creator. That's the truth that Paul has laid as the foundation for us. What is the implication of these marvelous truths? The implication is that Christ is king. That Christ is Lord. That we belong to him. Not only will all of creation ultimately be reconciled to Christ, we have the privilege that we are now reconciled to Christ Even now, we can and must serve him as king, lord, and master. See, the truth Paul has shared is meant to lead to transformation. And and what transformation is that to produce? That we would live according to Christ. That we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This is the foundation that we must stand on so that it can produce the transformation that God intended. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now we've talked about that a lot. That's a great goal. But we need a little bit more on that. We need, what does that actually look like? And thankfully, In this final section of transformation, Paul is going to reveal that. And what I appreciate about Paul is the way he does things so clearly and and just defined and ordered in a way that is very easy for us to digest. Not all of the books of the Bible do that, and some of you prefer that. For me, I like the structure. I like the order. What we've already seen in chapter 3 is all of these different ways in which we are to demonstrate that Christ is Lord. Pastor Bill, well, uh, Ted started us off by talking about the foundation that we are to seek and set the things that are, set our mind on the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. That we should actually live according to the truth of these, of of what Paul has already shown us. But in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3, Paul addresses our personal life. What are you doing? What are you taking off? What are you putting on? Regardless of anyone else, how are you living according to this truth? Are you submitting to Christ as Lord? In verses 12 through 17, what we looked at last week, he addresses the church. How are we doing this? How are we living together? Are we living with compassion, with kindness? Are we focused on others? 
Are we allowing the word of Christ to dwell richly in us as we teach and admonish one another that we're word-saturated? Are we Christ-centered as a congregation so that in everything, it is all according to the name of Christ? In our passage, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, he addresses the home life. Now, you might think, well, I'm not sure exactly how servants and masters fit into that, but according to that time, these were the household roles, that these people would live together. This was called a household, and this is what you were supposed to do at home. I think many of us can realize that you might be able to present yourself a certain way, but at home, it's really hard to keep the mask going. You know, at home, you are who you really are. So Paul gives instructions. This is what submission to Christ looks like in the home. What we'll see next week is he addresses the public life. What is our submission to Christ meant to look like out there? For Paul, that looks like going to prison. I'm preaching the gospel so that others may know the mystery, and on account of these things, I'm in prison. Each of these areas are diverse, but the commands that are given, even though they're different, there's a common denominator. What's the foundation for all of this? Who Jesus is and what he's done. In other words, it's a call to submit. Submit to Christ. This idea comes out most clearly in the verse that immediately precedes our passage. If you look at verse 17, this is what it says. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why do we just spend so much time going back to reestablish the foundation? Because we're going to look at these verses, and when we're talking about relationships, we're going to see three pairs of relationships between wives and husbands, children and fathers, servants and masters. When we're looking at those, it gets really hard not to look at the whole situation on an earthly perspective. To consider everything according to earthly reason. Well, I'll do this, but only if I understand why. I'll do this only if it actually is advantageous to me. I'll do this, but here's all of the exceptions of how I won't do it. But if Christ is Lord, these commands are not a choice that are up to us. If this is his word and his decree, our only choice is to submit and obey. The issue at stake in these verses is not our earthly relationships, it's our heavenly calling. Will we submit to the Lord in every area of our life or will we continue in rebellion? Too often we place ourselves in the position of the Lord when we effectively say, I won't obey or submit unless I understand or until I agree, I won't accept these commands and I certainly won't appreciate them. But what are we doing if not putting ourselves in the position of the Lord? That choice isn't up to us. Now, I really hope that as we go through this passage, we get a little bit more insight and understand this. But you need to know when it comes to this passage, for all of us, it doesn't really matter if we understand all of it. Do we understand that we are doing this out of submission to God? We must submit our earthly roles to the Lord to fulfill our heavenly calling. So what does that look like? Well, in our passage, we're going to look at these three different groups, starting with wives and husband. Let's look at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. I want us to see right from the start, what is Paul's foundation? What is the connection for why he is telling the wives to do this? What does he say at the end of the verse? As is fitting in the Lord. 
This is not wives submit to your husbands because this is a good idea. Wives submit to your husbands because it's always going to work out. Wives submit to your husbands because this is the best place for you. Those may be true according to God's plan, but the foundation is because it is fitting in the Lord. This is coming back to the truth of verse 17. Whatever you do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what is submission? Submission means to align oneself with another. It's to put yourself together. You're going after the same goal. You are not in opposition against one another. You're doing it together. Unfortunately, we have a a bad picture of this. Often we think of submission as the idea of one who is bowing down to the other in order to be a footstool so someone else can be higher. Understand that there are elements of submission in which we are bowing to one who is greater. When we are talking about submission of us to God, that's not an equal playing field. The submission that we have to the Lord is you are greater and we bow before you. But there's not, that's not always the type of submission. There are types of submission between those who are equal in value. We see this picture of Christ submitting to the Father. Christ did not submit to the Father because he was less than. It was the element of their relationship. So it says to submit. Here's a picture that I want us to think about better, of alignment. Think of it as being beneath the umbrella that keeps you dry. Think of it as being behind the shield that keeps you safe. Now let's be honest and, and say that not always does the human relationship work that way. You wives are married to fallen men. And there will be times where submitting to your husband is not the umbrella that kept you dry because he's fallen. There will be times that he is not the shield that keeps you safe. But in those times, you remember and recall the true submission that is happening is from you to God. Unfortunately, we have many misunderstandings of submission. And I'm just going to go through some of these. I'm going to go through these fast. If you want to talk about them more later, we can. But here are some elements that we get wrong with, with submission. Biblical submission is not the outdated system of ancient and ignorant cultures. This isn't just the result of Paul. You know, Paul was just trying to address them where they were. And so he said, knowing that in the Greco-Roman world, the role that men had there. So he said, submit to them because, well, that's what's already doing there. And I don't want to, to disrupt things too much. No, what did he say before? There is not Jew or Greek, Scythian or barbarian. Paul is comfortable with disrupting culture. So this isn't just an outdated system. Biblical submission is not a necessary evil. Well, someone needs to be in charge and, you know, God just flipped a coin and he said, "Ah, I guess I'll pick the guys. Biblical submission is not a result of the fall. God established submission within marriage before the fall as part of his intended order. Biblical submission is not a marker of status or value. God created male and female in his image. He created them. People who look at at scripture and think that this is a way of showing that God devalues women do not know Christ and do not know his word. Even the fact that Paul is writing directly to the wife is is an element that demonstrates that. What we could imagine in that time was husbands, subject your wives to yourself. Make them obey. Make them subject to you. But Paul doesn't do that. He treats them as an equal. He says, wives, this is your role. And husbands, we're going to get to your role. 
Within marriage, we have two people who are the same in being, but different in doing. Same value, different roles. We've seen a little bit of what submission is not. Well, so what is submission? Well, submission is a divine and communicable attribute. How many times when we were going through the Gospel of John did we see Christ submitting to the Father? What is the famous prayer we know of Christ when he's in the garden? Not, but your will. Within the Trinity, Christ submitting. Submission is eternal. That doesn't mean, I'm not saying that you as your wife will, as a wife, will always submit to your husband. We know uh, Jesus talks about in the Gospels that there is not marriage in heaven. So when I say submission is eternal, I don't mean in necessarily the same earthly roles we have here. Those earthly roles are going away. We're not going to have children and parents in having that relationship in heaven. We're not going to have husband and wife. We're not going to have master and servant. And yet, the idea of submission is eternal because we will eternally be submissive before God. That's not something that's just created for right now. Submission is part of God's created order. Submission is universal, meaning this is not something that God is just picking on wives for. All of us are called to submit. All of us will submit. Every knee shall bow. Submission is distinctly Christian and therefore God revealing. In 1 Peter 3, it talks to the wives that you might win your husband. Christ revealed who the Father was and who he was because he was submissive to the Father. You know him because you know me. In Corinthians, there's a passage where it talks about that the Christians, because of how they were submissive, it revealed the truth of the gospel. Even slaves to their masters would reveal a greater truth. Biblical submission is a matter of our role and responsibility before God and not our perceived earthly rights. We get this mixed up. So often we stop on this because we think, no, but this is a, not right. This doesn't fit into my view of my rights. Our right is that we have the role and responsibility of submitting to the Father. Submission is for our benefit. This is according to God's order and not sin's chaos. So we've already seen the reason Paul calls for this submission is it is fitting in the Lord. Now understand that this is not every wife to every husband, meaning I can go to any other woman here and say, you must submit to me. I don't have that right. It's submit to your husband. Every passage that deals with submission of the wife and husband is always very clear to say that. Submit to your husband. Let's just be honest. Not from experience, but being married to a wife, this is hard. Submitting to a fallen and incredibly sinful man who is still struggling to remove the old self is hard. Submitting to him is going to hurt. But you need to understand it, it's hard and yet it's God's plan. But understanding yourself is, is that this is not going to be your natural inclination. This isn't, not only is this countercultural, it's not natural. God said this would be hard from the beginning. In Genesis 3, he says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I want to give a caution to the wives. As, as we've already seen, you need to know that your natural disposition is to not submit to your husband. And that is a result of the fall. You also need to know that everything around you is going to tell you this is wrong, that it devalues you, that it is abusive. This means that from both inside you and from outside of you, you are hearing the same message, don't do it. And there's one voice that's saying, this is right. And it's the voice of God. Please understand, there may be times where you will not submit to your husband and be right in doing that. Verse 17 
informs verse 18. Verse 17 takes precedent. Do everything in the name of the Lord. If submitting to your husband would mean breaking verse 17, don't do it. Unfortunately, though, we have made that category probably a little broader than it needs to be. That because we are looking for reasons to not submit, we are very creative in the application of, well, I don't know if I really can submit because this doesn't apply to that element. No, what we need to understand is, no, your natural course is to not do this. And so you're going to need to be creative. Okay, how can I still be submissive to God and my husband while doing this? One of the warnings is don't use the very specific exceptions as general excuses. There are exceptions. But don't use those very specific exceptions that are found in Scripture as a general excuse of, well, I don't think I really need to do this. What do you need to do? Seek and set your mind on the things that are above. Trust in the Lord. I want to give a caution to husbands right now in in saying that this submission is voluntary. Who is Paul writing to? The wife. Paul did not write to me as a husband and say, Stephen, make your wife submissive. Compel her into that action. No, it's written to my wife. And so I need to understand that there is no point where I am given the authority to force her into submission. I should counsel her to submit, and I should strive to live as one who is easy to submit to. We're going to look at that in just a second. But we often wrongly interpret these verses to think that they are an opening for an authority in which we demand and compel submission. And I'm not given that right. If in your marriage your wife is not submitting to you, first look at your own actions and see, are you asking her to submit to things that God has not told her to do? In which case she is right to not submit to you. Beyond that, take it to the Lord. Take it to the Lord because ultimately it is between her relationship and God as she is seeking to submit to him. Going on to verse 19, it says this, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, this is how we submit to the Lord. We love our wives. Now, I think that we look at that and we say, man, that is way easier. They got the easy job on this one. We do that because we wrongly understand what this command is. We, we bring down the command to, of love to be just something that regards our passions that we feel towards our wives. We say we love them because we prefer to be with them. We love them because we provide for them. Those are part of love, but they are by no means the full measure of what God is calling us to. What does the love that he calls us to look like? Well, verses 12 through 14 in our chapter gave us an idea of that. We saw this last week, that love, which equates to all of these things, is compassionate, it's kindness, it's humility, and meaning that we are putting the needs of our wife first. It's gentleness, it's patience, it's bearing with her faults, her differences, her weaknesses. It's forgiving her sins. Love is what brings all those things together. 1 Corinthians 13, while although it's really talking about the context within the church, it still applies in defining what love is. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the love that we are called to love our wives with. What grade do you give yourself? I'm going to just be honest. I had to ask my wife forgiveness this week. I'm looking at this list and I'm like, man, I'm failing. I'm not loving her like this. And actually, it's a little bit harder than that because of what Ephesians says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way. Husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Am I loving my wife to the point where everything I do is seeking to set herself up for success, seeking to set herself up so that she is presented as holy and blameless to her eternal father? Or am I just loving by default? Just kind of falling into a rut. Well, these are the ways I shall love. I, I buy her flowers on Mother's Day. I, 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 I've got my, my system that I do things. No, this is the standard we're called to. And do you think that if I'm loving her like that, it will make her role that much easier? Husbands, you, we need to understand that in our leadership, one day we will have to give an account that yes, maybe our wives will have to give an account for not being submissive, but we will have to give an account for why it was so hard for her to be submissive because we weren't loving her like Christ loved the church. Goes on and says, do not be harsh with them. It's the idea of bitterness that sits in that foul taste that sits in your mouth. Don't let yourself become bitter towards your wife. Don't let yourself become harsh with her considering the things that you have to do. Unfortunately, we see a picture of both of these ideas being broken in the garden. Adam is there when when Satan comes, the serpent comes to tempt his wife, where Satan comes to subvert the order that God established and he goes to the wife and he talks to her and the big problem that is mentioned in the passage and Adam, who was with her? Did Adam love her the way he should have? When he saw his wife being tempted by Satan, did he stand up and fight for her? Did he protect her? Did he willingly take the the damage and say, no, stand behind me, align yourself with me. I know what God has said. Let me be your shield. Or did he let her take the fall? And then after that, when he did not love her the way he should, was he then not harsh with her? The sweetness of their relationship, did it not become bitter in his mouth when he said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's all her fault, God. What happened to the Adam that spoke poetry of his wife, the one who said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. How much of a change from those verses to the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. We're called to love our wives. We are called to not be bitter towards them, to not be harsh towards them, to protect them, to make their role, which is hard. The world is looking at your wife and saying she is wrong, she is stupid, she is foolish to do these things, and we're making it harder by making it so that it's not easy to submit. We must set our wives up well. This is going to require intentionality for both husband and wife. This is not going to just happen. Let's look at children and fathers. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. We have some kids in here. This is your role. If you are under Christ, if you understand that Jesus is your king, then he's giving you a command. He's saying, obey your parents. We don't have to go much more into explanation than that. It's pretty simple. Obey your parents. And what is the connection? For it pleases the Lord. It pleases the one who is your master. This is our role as children. Word to the parents, if children are told to obey, there is a great responsibility in considering what we are telling them to do. Make sure that the the burden that we are placing on them in obedience is actually one that Scripture places on them. 
Paul makes that a little clearer with his admonition to fathers in verse four, where he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Or that's in Ephesians. What he says in uh, Colossians is, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Do not provoke, do not stir them up, do not instigate, do not set them up for failure. Sometimes we have such a huge list of don't, 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 no, 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 no. You must, you must, you must, you must. And they're discouraged. They can't do it. I, again, this verse just really hit me this week. I had to ask my kids for forgiveness this week. Thinking of, of my method of parenting with them in which I'm putting all of these extra rules on them, all of these things in which there's no way and they're just failing and they're discouraged. What's the point of even trying? I'm just gonna fail and they're just gonna be angry with me and it's not going to work. I wanna be careful though in understanding there is an element in which I am revealing the failure of my children. I want them to know that they are broken. I don't want to break them. And there's a difference there. Revealing to them that they are broken is revealing to them what Scripture says about them. Hey, I know you're trying to love your brother, but what you just did was not loving. And you can't love your brother because you only can do that through the power of Christ. My role as a dad is to point them to their need of Jesus, to show them you can't do this in your strength. You need a better son, a better example. We need to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let them see their brokenness. Don't break them. Have you ever, in the discipline of your child, just seen them crestfallen? They are discouraged beyond belief because you have not pointed them to what they truly need. You need Christ. Continues to bond servants and masters. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Again, we see this obey in everything and understand that this is under the submission of Christ. How many times is the Lord mentioned in these verses? This is not condoning the owning of people. We're gonna talk a little bit more about that, but understand what this is saying is that you are submitting to Christ. You are revealing a transformed person. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. That does not give us the right to ignore verse 17. Verse 17 is still king, that everything happens to the Lord. If an earthly master told a slave to do something that was wrong, they must refuse it. We see that, that idea with Joseph. Joseph refused to sleep with, Potiphar's wife, uh, with the captain of the guard's wife. He was right to do so. But what we see here is that you, we are, the expectation is not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of the heart, fearing the Lord. Who are you really serving? The Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not from men, knowing that you will receive the reward from God. He knows what's happening. God sees. God will reward you. You might be wronged in the process. Then he gives this warning for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. I think it's easy to think that he's talking to masters here and there's an element where he might be because that's coming next. But I think he's still mostly talking to slaves. That there could be the idea, well, this is so unfair that I am justified to do these actions. There is never a time in which personal injustice gives us the right to sin. There's going to be a temptation for that. Even in your own current workplace, which there's a difference there. Again, this is seeing this more as a household, but there is an application here for us who work 
to think, well, wait a second. I, they don't pay me the way that they should pay me. It's okay for me to take these extra little bonuses back home with me. It's okay for me to play the system. It's okay for me to work one way when the boss is around and then a different way when he's gone. It's okay for me on the way I speak of my employer when he's not there to the other employees or to other people in general. What is the connection? How does Paul connect this to the slaves? As to the Lord. We have a bigger goal. Our greater goal, our greater mission is to reveal Christ. Is to live in a way that is honoring. And that might mean that receiving personal injustice. Didn't Jesus say they're going to kill you and persecute you for my name? That's going to happen in your workplace. But we are serving not men. We are serving the Lord finishes by saying, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, now part of the question is, we can might be able to see, okay, he didn't tell the slaves to run away, but that's because they have a bigger mission. But now he's talking to the guy in charge. Why didn't he tell the masters, set your slaves free? It's easier to look at the slave part and say, well, yeah, it, they, they, this is a noble mission, a noble calling to endure unrighteousness for the sake of God. But now he's talking to a Christian master. We do need to understand that slavery as in scripture is not the same as the slavery that we saw in America. Those are different. However, I'm also not going to pretend and go to the point and say, oh, well, it was just like modern day employment. There was no abuse. There was nothing wrong. No, obviously there were because of what Paul has to say here. But what we see here is that Paul's goal was personal transformation, not political reform. Paul's goal here is not to overthrow the Roman Empire. Paul's goal is that we would live as true Christians. And while he does not say in words, set them free, explain what his actions mean. What does it mean to treat someone justly and fairly? Not according to the world standards, justly and fairly according to God's standards. Treating someone justly and fairly according to the fact that they are created in the image of God. Justly and fairly according to what we saw earlier in chapter 3 verse 11 that there is no therefore not slave or free here. Justly and fairly according to the equity that God has called to. In fact, these verses were used to abolish slavery. This idea of if, if you, if we're bringing it to the modern day, if you are a boss, if you are in charge, if you have any role of authority, you are called not to abuse those people in your authority, but to treat them justly and fairly. These verses are hard for us to consider all of the implications, but within the idea of the truth of who Christ is, every single role that we have comes under that authority. The bigger question in this passage is, will we submit to the Lord and his heavenly order, or will we rebel and revel in the world's chaos? I just want you to think about the story of Scripture. Where do we see the clearest examples of submission? Christ. Where do we see the clearest examples of rebellion? Satan. Christ, God created the world with an order to it. It complemented everything. Everything was in its right place. Everything was aligned. What happened when Satan, what did Satan want? I'm not satisfied with my position. I want the position of Christ. I want to disrupt everything, and it broke it. In God, we see order. In Satan, we see chaos. In God, we see the picture of submission within the Trinity. With Satan, we see rebellion. 
It's possible that in hearing this list, you have become discouraged yourself in knowing the role that you are called to. The fact is, we can't do this. Eve failed in her role as wife. She did not submit to her husband. Adam failed in his role as a husband. He did not love and protect. Rather, he was harsh with her. Just the next chapter, their children failed to obey and we see murder quickly going throughout their generations. Adam was not the father he was meant to be. Stories throughout the Old Testament show the abuse of both servants and masters. So where is the hope for us to accomplish these verses? It's found in Christ. Do we see a picture in Christ of one who is equal choosing to submit to another of the same value? In the Trinity, Christ chose to submit to the Father. Wives, if you're looking for a picture, how do I submit? Look to Christ and his relationship of the Trinity. Husbands, do we see a picture of godly authority in Scripture, in Christ, of what it looks like to truly love other, your wife and not be harsh with her? We do. We see it in the picture of Christ and the church. In, in Christ, do we see the picture of what it means to be a submissive son? We do in how we related to the Father, even doing things that were not his will to do, but not my will, to, but your will be done. Do we see in Christ the picture of a loving father who does not provoke and instigate his children, his disciples, does not cause them to be discouraged, but encourages them towards godliness? We do. Do we see in Christ the picture of the long-suffering servant who is receiving abuse that should not have happened to him? We do in the suffering servant of Isaiah. Do we see in Christ the picture of one who will deal rightly and justly with his servants? We do. It's possible that you are discouraged, and I definitely felt discouraged as I confronted my own failures. However, we must remember this truth. Christ did not save us from a place in which we were already submissive. Christ saved us in our rebelliousness. He will not abandon us now as we fail to submit to him, but that doesn't mean we do not strive for it. It means that there is grace. But we must remember that we can only accomplish these roles through his strength. There is a reason it keeps on pointing us to Christ in the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord, as pleases the Lord, knowing you are serving the Lord. Submit your earthly role to the Lord to fulfill your heavenly calling. God, we confess that these verses are hard for us. We confess that our, in our fallen nature, we don't want to accept them. We don't want to apply them. Lord, we don't want to appreciate them. And, and yet, Lord, we know that these are what you have called us to do. Lord, help us to see the blessing of being under you, being aligned with you. Father, ultimately, I pray that each of us in, in our various roles that we would choose to submit to you. I pray that we would submit our earthly roles to you as our Lord so that we might accomplish the heavenly calling you have given us. We pray this all in Jesus' name.